What can 20 years do to you? Well, consider the case of George Ryan, former governor of Illinois, lifelong Republican. Ryan is famous for one of the most dramatic flip-flops any big league politician has made in this country on an issue in the last few decades. In February 2000, Ryan, a death penalty supporter, tough on crime, declared a moratorium on the death penalty in Illinois, the first state to do that in decades. You may have heard about that. And he's spoken about that decision in public a lot. But we found this recording of a speech that he made at Northwestern University, one of the rare times that he's talked about his decisions so personally and emotionally. And among other things, he told the audience how he had actually been one of the lawmakers who put in place the very law that he ended up suspending. This is back when he was a representative to the Illinois General Assembly. In 1977, I voted to reinstate the death penalty in Illinois. I vividly remember an opponent of capital punishment who challenged those of us who voted to put capital punishment back on the book. I was standing on the floor of the House, and I had punched my green button. when somebody on the other side stood up and said, how many of you that are voting green would be willing to throw the switch in the electric chair? It was a sobering question and a sobering thought. I don't want to execute anybody, and I don't want to be the executioner. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. But he believed in the system, believed it was fair, and he voted for the death penalty. 20 years pass. More than 20 years. Ryan becomes governor. And around the same time, it was becoming clear that there were problems in the way that Illinois was sending men to death row. One case after another was being overturned. And then the hypothetical question that that legislator had asked back in the 1970s became a very real question for George Ryan. He was the one who had to decide whether the switch would be thrown in the case of a man named Andrew Cochrelius. I began a very extensive review in the case file. I wanted to make sure that there were no mistakes. I called in my trusted friends, both prosecutors and defense lawyers, to have them review the case files. I talked to investigators and I talked to everybody that I could that had some knowledge about the law. And I agonized, frankly. I'm a pharmacist who had the good fortune to be elected governor of this great state. Now, suddenly, I shouldered the burden of making the decisions about life or death. Tuesday, March 17th, the day before the execution, Ryan still did not know what to do. At one point, he had his aides type up a stay of execution. At another, he asked for the prayers of Illinois residents. By 7 p.m., he declared that he was convinced that Cochrelius was guilty. Six hours later, Cochrelius was dead. And what comes through in this particular speech is Ryan's anger at having to be the one to decide after so many people along the way had done such a careless job at figuring out guilt in this and other cases. Within a year, he had declared his moratorium. Get this one. This ought to open everybody's eyes. Nearly half of the 300 capital cases in Illinois had been reversed for a new trial or a resentencing. Can you believe that? Almost half out of 300 cases had been rescheduled for resentencing or a new trial. It's like flipping a coin. Heads or tails, live or die. That's what it's like. Can you believe that? I faced my share of criticism over the past three years, and especially from people in my own party about the moratorium and the clemency hearings. But until you've sat in judgment and made that life or death decision, you really can't debate with me about what it's like to pull the switch. I know the burden, 
And I know what it feels like to be responsible for a man to be executed. It's not pleasant. Time passes, people change. Sometimes they change a lot. Today on our program, we bring you three stories about what the passage of time can do to somebody. When each story begins, the world is aligned one way. Then years pass, sometimes just months pass, and everything is different. It gives you hope in a way. It's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Act one of our show today, The Hiker and the Cowman Should Be Friends. Scott Carrier tells the story of how the environmentalists who ranchers hated the most, who they tried to run out of town on a rail, who they actually hung in effigy, came to take the rancher side of things. Act two, scrapbook the verb. A Houston woman is trying to document every day of her four-year-old daughter's life in preparation for a day far away. Act three, slingshot. John Hodgman tells the story of two people, one beach, one space ride, and what a difference one year makes. Stay with us. Act one, the hiker and the cowman should be friends. Scott Carrier tells this story from southern Utah of a man named Grant Johnson who goes through a huge change over time. The first time I interviewed Grant Johnson, he had just gotten out of jail. He'd been in for eight days, charged with sabotaging four Caterpillar tractors down on the Burr Trail. The Burr Trail was an old dirt road, 60 miles long, connecting Tickaboo and Boulder, Utah. It was the middle of nowhere, used mainly by ranchers to graze their cattle on the public lands. The ranchers and the county government wanted to improve the road, turn it into a highway, but a local environmental group was protesting the whole notion. They thought the land should be designated as a wilderness and left alone. Then one morning, some of the road workers discovered that someone had poured sand in their gas tanks, and the sheriff arrested Grant Johnson because he was one of the three founding members of the environmental group, which was called SUA, the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, and he lived only a few miles from the scene of the crime, and he'd been such a thorn in their sides, protesting road construction and timber sales, that he'd already been hung in effigy from a lamppost on Main Street in Escalani. When Grant posted bail, the sheriff told him that he couldn't guarantee Grant's safety if he went home. So I drove down there to talk to Grant, 250 miles south from Salt Lake to Boulder, then seven miles east down the Burr Trail to Deer Creek, where I parked and followed the stream until I saw Grant's 16-foot camper trailer. He was living there with his girlfriend, Sue Farron. Inside was a bed, a little table that folded down, and a gas stove, but no running water, no bathroom, no electricity, no phone. Outside, it was a wilderness, a place of natural forces, red Navajo sandstone from the Jurassic, dark blue sky, and just real quiet. Well, my name is Grant Johnson. I live on at Deer Creek Ranch. I've been in the area of southern Utah, mainly around the Burr Trail, since 75. I've lived on either end of the Burr Trail, or on it. And uh, I first came here when I was 16, and it was just incredibly beautiful. That's, that's the number one thing about this country, is it's just so beautiful. You drop your jaw, you know, it's a, there's nothing like it anywhere. You know, like from here, I could 
you know, I could get on the horse and ride for 80 miles before I'd hit Lake Powell and not see anyone or any sign of man. There's just one road here to cross, and then there wouldn't be another road. So it, you feel like you're seeing a lot of it for the first time. The first white man, you know, you have the feeling of the first white man a lot. And it's a real sense of freedom, too. There's no, no people, no law. It just feels real free, wide open. <laughs> I never asked Grant if he sabotaged the equipment. I think mainly because I didn't want to see him lie. It was like a little war back then, a turf battle between the cowboys and the environmentalists, Heavenly Father versus Mother Earth. Both sides considered the land to be sacred. So maybe it was more like a holy war, a clash of cultures. This is Boulder cattleman Del Lefevre, also back in 87. A man who works from sunup to sundown. He wouldn't even stop his chores during the interview. Yeah, we're the steward of the land. The Lord give us this land to take care of it. And I think if we don't take care of this land, we're going to answer in the hereafter. And uh, the do-getters, I call them. Uh, some call them the tree-huggers, the do-getters come along. Really? What purpose do they have? What, what stake have they got in this ground? They've got a job in Salt Lake, a job in Denver, a job in Flagstaff. My thing is, I don't think the rancher has hurt this land in the last 88, 90 years they've been here. I mean, it, it, I'll say we turn this all over to the backpack, or the environmentalists, you know, shut her down. Okay. They want this road shut down, let's just shut the road down. Let's don't grade the road, let's just let it go back to natural. How many people would see this? How many people enjoy it? They backpack on the trails that we've carved out. They backpack on our cow trails, the hikers. You know, if we didn't have them trails there, they wouldn't even get there. And, uh, and my question, I guess, everybody, what would Boulder be without a ranch? Do you think Boulder would be Boulder without Boulder? They're losing who really take care of the land. They don't take care of the land. All they want to do is come out and smoke their pot, do their little hiking around, and go home. The Holy War was about a number of things. Road construction, timber sales, energy development, mining rights. But part of the Holy War was simply about cows. Cows grazing on the public land. There's a lot of public land in southern Utah, about 90% of it. And even though it's mostly sand and sandstone and sagebrush, there's still enough grass and other plants along the riverbanks and up in the mountains for cows to feed. And when the Mormon pioneers first settled the land, that's how they survived, by running their cattle over huge areas. The problem was that the ranchers sometimes put too many cows out there, and then they sometimes left the cows alone for long periods of time, and the cows overgrazed, causing some serious erosion and environmental destruction. So the environmentalists wanted the cows out of there. They were destructive, and they were not native to the desert, and they also left cow pies everywhere they went. Cow dung, not the tidy little berries left by deer, but big sloppy globs of poop on the trails and in the rivers. And a lot of backpackers felt this detracted from their wilderness experience. So for the environmentalists, the cow pies became a symbol of everything wrong with the management of the public land. But for the ranchers, Grant Johnson was the symbol of everything wrong with the environmentalists. 
I didn't really realize it. Maybe I'm kind of thick-skinned, but I didn't really realize how clear the divisions were um, in town, environmentalists or or hippie. <laughs> um, I didn't realize a lot of things. I didn't realize how um, under people's skin Grant had gotten. There were people that just absolutely hated him. I mean, he was in their midst, and he wasn't didn't appear to be leaving. That's Sue Farron, Grant's girlfriend. They're married now, but back then she was still pretty much a young woman from the coast of Connecticut. She met Grant after she got out of college, when she had a summer job as a ranger in Zion National Park. Grant told Sue about the land he owned on Deer Creek, and that he had some horses and was going to get some more, and start an outfitting company taking tourists down into the canyon country to these beautiful places he'd discovered. Sue thought Grant was a man with a plan, and she went with him to Deer Creek one night under a full moon and basically never left. That was before Grant got arrested. She didn't really realize she was walking into a war zone. Nine felonies and four misdemeanors, and he was thrown in jail, and they set his bail at $250,000, which was... I mean, there was a guy in there who had shot somebody through the head, and his bail was 50000 But at any rate, nonetheless, um, we raised... $260,000 in property it was pretty interesting. Um, they tried to make it, the county attorney tried to make it a condition of bail that he'd not return to his home until the whole matter was settled, which is uh, absolutely unheard of. Um, he represented the environmental community, and I think there were forces here, elected officials, who thought if he went away, if we could uproot him and get him out of Deer Creek, we would be done with this. Fortunately, we are absolutely blessed by having two very good friends who are lawyers. It, we don't have a lot of money, and if he had had to go with the public defender, he would have been traded over breakfast at the Flying J in Panguitch, man. They would have cut a deal, and that would be that. For two years, everyone held their breath. That's how long it took for Grant to go to trial. And then it turned into kind of a farce. The county just didn't have any evidence, and they dropped the charges. Somebody, a friend of ours, took us aside and said, you guys should go away for a while. Things are really hot. They're, they're you know, talking, talking it up in Escalante. They want to come and route you out. And we, I said, you know, we'll lock the gate, but we're not going anywhere. And the first thing we did was we went to Salt Lake City, and we went to my favorite gun store, and I pointed out all the guns that I needed to buy and all the little clips that I needed to go with them. And I came back um, um, with, I guess, maybe defensive weapons. <laughs> but at any rate, I came back um, a Mini-14 with a 40-round clip. It's a semi-automatic. and uh, stolen, right? That's a rifle. And then a 38. Grant and Sue pretty much kept to themselves, staying out on Deer Creek, working on their land, raising horses, and getting ready to start their outfitting company. It must have been tough, living alone in the middle of nowhere, no power, no phone, on the edge of a community of a hundred people, some of whom hated their guts. One day, Sue went to pick up Grant's kids from his first marriage. 
So anyhow, as I was approaching Escalante, um, <clears throat> a fellow who worked for the county in the county dump truck was coming towards me, and he ran me off the road while flipping me off. What a talent, huh? <laughs> one hand, one hand running me off the road, and I w- ended up in the ditch. And but anyway, this is you know. So anyhow, I go to uh, Cedar City or Paraguna, and I pick up the kids, and I come back. And when I got back, now we've got kids around, so don't want to leave the gun loaded. I I drop the bullets out of it. It's a revolver, and I drop the bullets out on the dash, and left the gun there. Well, the next morning, Grant and I are sitting, and we're having coffee, and the gate's locked down at the bottom of the ranch, and we look out the window, and here come two or three guys riding on horseback with long things laid across their legs in front of their saddle. And I thought, holy mother of God, we're going to be killed, and we haven't even had coffee. So I go flying out of the house, rip the door open, and start stuffing bullets. And I get three in there and think, good enough, and slam it shut and turn around. And the guy's right behind me, and he's grinning from ear to ear. And he sees that I have flown out of the house and have grabbed a gun, and I've got a gun ready in my hand. It's not pointing at him. It's pointing down on the ground. And he's smiling at me, and I think, well, something's not right. (laughs) Okay? And he goes, hi, ma'am, we're with the cougar study. We'd just like permission to come through. And my knees were knocking together <laughs> under my bathrobe. And Grant comes flying out with his 22, and I say, oh, honey, they're here for the cougar study. <laughs> Again, this all happened in the 1980s. When Grant was arrested, Reagan was in the White House. Then Bush came and went. When Clinton was elected, the environmental movement gained a lot of momentum. By 1995, Sue had helped write a proposal to Congress to designate 5.7 million acres of southern Utah's wilderness areas. So I went back to Deer Creek to interview Grant again. But I was stunned that the man who'd been the living embodiment of the environmental movement, a man who'd risked everything for it, was now talking just like the cowboys. Personally, I think the worst threat we have is the threat of a national park happening over here. You know, that the national park trend is to develop, build roads, hire as many police as they can, which are rangers, and then bust people for breaking the rules. That was Grant. Sue felt pretty much the same way. She'd had enough of the environmentalists. They're shrill. They're shrill. They're insensitive and they're shrill and they have no empathy. And they have, I think, perhaps a limited understanding of what's going on down here. In the years that had passed, SUA had evolved from a grassroots organization of three guys around a kitchen table into an established urban corporation with lawyers and lobbyists in Washington and a long list of donating members from all over the country and even Europe. SUA had also kicked Grant off its board of directors because they no longer saw eye to eye. Grant had switched sides right in the middle of a heated political battle, something that almost never happens, and he'd done it in the rarest of ways, by looking at the evidence and then concluding he'd been dead wrong. It had been a war about cows, and he decided cows weren't that bad. When you first came here, you didn't like cows? No, I hated cows. I still, I still don't like cows. It's just I have honestly seen that cows do not hurt the land here. In 22 years of exploring this country, I've seen 
where the cows are, where they aren't, where they used to be and aren't anymore, where they didn't used to be and are now. And the places that the cows do get don't look much different than the places that they can't get. You know, and and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying this is true for Great Basin or Arizona or Idaho or anywhere else, but here in the Escalante, in these canyons, I think the grazing doesn't hurt anything. It, you know, it, 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 a canyon bottom like the Gulch, they trail cows through there, and I've seen people, campers in there, and they see these cows go through and pound up the ground and crap everywhere, and then the campers scream about the cows, say how horrible they are. The campers go back to the city, and a month later I go back down to the same canyon, and you can't tell there's ever a cow in it. It's growing up with grass and clover, and down on the river bottom, there was a place where the gulch hit the river where you couldn't walk through there because the guy hadn't put cows in there in so many years. Well, he he finally started putting his cows down there, and now it's much grassier. You can hike through it, and in my opinion, it's a lot more pleasant. And uh, you know, so I'm not really sure. I I'm not really sure that what's being blamed on cows is really their fault. In Grant's mind, he was still an environmentalist because he continued to be deeply in love with the wilderness around him. In fact, he remained a member of SUA and sent them checks because he thought they were a necessary force in defending and promoting wilderness areas. But he'd become like a devout Christian who no longer went to church because he just couldn't get along with the other members. When I asked Sue about it, how the change came about, she told me it started when she made friends with an old rancher in Boulder, Kirk Lyman. Kirk was probably 40 years, almost 40 years my senior, about my dad's age. And um, one day I was at the Bertrell Grill, and he asked me if he said he was getting all these magazines and did I need something to read. You know, we didn't, the bookmobile came every once in a while, but pretty much uh, we passed magazines around a lot. So he said he had all these magazines, and I thought, huh, I didn't even know he spoke. I'd seen him around town, and... Um, and I figured that he was opening a door, you know. When Sue told me this, things became instantly more clear. Sue's pretty and funny and good with horses. Of course the cowboys wanted to talk to her. So anyway, I just kind of got in the habit of visiting with him and hanging out with him, and he maybe he had a project to do, and I'd help him with it. And, and then we were raising some horses here, and he'd come down, and I'd make biscuits and coffee for Sunday breakfast, and... Mm. Kirk was bossy. Kirk once told me how to strike a match. I am not kidding you. I couldn't make that up if I wanted to. He, I mean, he definitely told you how to do it. Kirk took Sue riding with him up on Boulder Mountain, packing salt for the Cattlemen's Association. And he told her stories, cowboy stories, like how when he was a kid, he'd go out to the Circle Cliffs and rope wild horses and take them home and break them. One time he had a wild horse that no one could ride, it wouldn't be broken, and eventually it ran straight into the corral and broke its neck. And I said, well, what'd you do? And he said, well, we went down the Circle Cliffs and we got another one. And, you know, that was kind of his attitude. You know, it was a very utilitarian approach. I guess some people would say kind of unenlightened, you know. What about the rights of that horse? What would PETA say about that? <laughs> I don't know. They wouldn't like it. Uh. So anyway, I guess I had the, always have had this ability to, to see that, you know, to listen to Kirk's conversation and to, to hear it, to live it, to understand what he was doing, to picture running full bore on a horse 
in wild country trying to rope another horse. And then the other part of me is saying, what would PETA think? You know, it was like... <laughs> So Sue became friends with Kirk, and since Kirk had lived in Boulder most of his life and was well-respected in the community, she automatically became friends with other locals. Grant was right behind her, realizing that the cowboys, or at least some of the cowboys, were pretty good guys after all. Like, here's an example. One time I was riding out for a week by myself, and I had a pack horse, and I got to where one canyon joined another, and... I looked upstream and there were these bright orange tents sitting in the floodplain right in the middle of the trail and they looked like UFOs. I turned right, went a quarter mile and I ran into a herd of cows and behind the herd of cows was this old timer Ivan Lyman and his son and his son had no shirt on and had about a 10 foot long willow that he was herding the cows with and a big grin on his face and Ivan was smiling and sitting on his horse, and and uh, I stopped, and he stopped and said, how's it going? And he just was just part of the land. I could just see it. His face looked like the cliffs looked. And, and the cows and his horse and his saddle were all the color of the dirt. They were just a part of the land. Given a choice of who he identified with, it definitely wasn't the people in the orange tents. The cowboys had done everything they could to threaten and intimidate Grant and Sue, but they'd stayed because their love of the land was stronger than the fear of the locals. And because they'd stayed, they ended up siding with the cowboys. Both Grant and Sue and the cowboys came to realize that they shared the common experience of living and surviving in the wilderness, which was both very difficult and very rewarding. Now, these days, Grant and Sue are busy with their outfitting company, Escalante Canyon Outfitters, taking tourists into remote areas of the desert. Most of their business comes from people returning for a second and third trip. They have seven horses in a big circular corral. They keep their land irrigated and green with alfalfa, Grant is carving out a new house from a sandstone mound next to their camper trailer. The mound is 60 feet tall and 150 feet wide, a huge dome. And they have a six-year-old daughter, Claire, who reminds me of a little mountain goat. White, translucent hair. She sits up on the side of the dome looking down at you in silence. Their place looks good, even beautiful. They're living their dream. The last time I was down there, I drove around Boulder looking for Del Lefevre, the cattleman I'd interviewed back in 87. He's still there, still running cows. Do you remember the first time you, you met Sue? You first time I've ever seen Sue, she just looked like a little hippie chick to me. And see, my war goes way back with hippies, so I'm not a hippie lover. And then I see around with Grant, and Grant and I kind of was on opposite sides for years because he was all wilderness and... Uh, I was multiple use. And, and Grant's had a struggle around. You gotta give it to old Grant. But Grant, he wasn't very well liked around here because he's beliefs. Hell, I'd have packed up and left a long time ago, but people treat me like they're treating old Grant. But Grant stuck it out. Grant stayed right, 
stayed right with it. And they don't bother anybody. They do their work. They do their thing. And, and Grant and, and Sue, they, they, fit. They, they fit in my class now. They're working people. I love working people. Anybody can uh, get, start a business uh, and, and, and make it. That's my kind of people. I can forgive anybody of anything if they're hard workers. So you've changed too, you think? You have to change. You, you change. Life, life can't go on. I mean, look how boulders change. You have to change with the times. You can't put a door up and say, hey, if you're not a cowboy, don't come to Boulder. When Grant moved to Boulder in 1975, there were 30 ranchers and 100 people in town. Now there are five ranchers and 200 people, only 12 of whom have been there longer than Grant. Over the years, SUA and other environmental groups succeeded in getting the government agencies to watch and regulate cattle on public land way more aggressively. The cattlemen, of course, would like to be left alone, but at the same time they admit that mistakes were made in the past. It's never been easy to graze cows in a desert, and now they've got these regulations and the competition for more efficient corporate ranches in Florida. And on top of all this, for the past five years, there's been a severe drought in southern Utah, so they're going out of business. And the environmentalists are at least a part of the reason why. Sue's a bad bunch, as far as ranchers are concerned. Uh, they want cows off. That's their goal. That was cows free, 93... No moo, I forget all their little slogans, but they wanted cows off the public land now for ever since they started, 20, 25 years ago. In fact, Grant was probably one of the fathers of that. That was their goal. And they've done a good job. You try to do something, they appeal it. Any, I try to put a water tank in, and they'll peel it. It's a tough, it's a tough thing when they, they get so much clout. Everything you do, they appeal. They can, they can stop anything. And, and, and Boulder's been ruined. These big ranches down that valley, they're gone. They're just ranching's done. Let's face it, they, the environmental groups won. Do you want to see this valley in five-acre lots and little houses? And is that what they wanted? The Sedona, Park City? Well, they got her. You come by here when my bunch is gone, and you'll see nothing but houses here. Oh, really? Yeah. When I was down there that last time, I went to a party Grant and Sue threw for some friends who were moving to Montana because they have kids and the local school in Boulder is not so good. There were about a hundred people, mostly families from Boulder, lots of kids, everybody outside by the dome and trailer under a full moon, a beautiful night. Sue invited a couple of local ranchers, but they didn't show up, maybe because of the beer and alcohol, they're Mormons or maybe because they just wouldn't have felt comfortable around so many newcomers to the area. It's kind of tragic. The ranchers are nearly gone, and people are moving in from the cities, which is pretty much how it's going all over the West. It's possible that the people moving in will come to see and appreciate the land in the way Grant and Sue have, that they'll eventually share the common experience of living in this beautiful place, but there won't be any cowboys around to help them. Sky Carrier. His stories are funded partly by HearingVoices.com and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Oh, the hiker and the cowman should be friends. Oh, the hiker and the 
cow man should be friends. One man ropes a cow with ease, the other chains himself to trees. But that's no reason why they can't be friends. Wilderness folk should stick together, wilderness folk should get along. Hikers tromped on a cattleman's trail, crunches find their joints and bones. I'd like to say a word for the hiker. We'll say it. He'd come out west and made a lot of changes. That's right. He'd come out west and make sure our new roads weren't built. I built condos right across our cattle ranges. Yeah, I'd love to see it again. Someone's left a cow pie there. Out in the wilds of Utah, folks are saying, We should behave ourselves and act like brothers. But them SUVs don't run on solar power So it's up against the wall, redneck mother The hiker and the cowman should be friends Oh, the hiker and the cowman should be friends Both men like the trails and sky But just one worships REI But that's no reason why they can't be friends Oh, yeehaw, John Lankford with John Rowhouse With apologies to Rogers and Hammerstein Coming up, the slingshot killed Goliath, but not John Hodgman. Details in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Today on our program, stories with a huge gap of time, right square in the middle of them. Years pass, things change. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2. Scrapbook, The Verb. If you don't know it already, there's a whole scrapbooking thing going on in this country. Scrapbook stores, scrapbook seminars, scrapbook conventions and magazines. They have made scrapbook into a verb, as in not now, I'm scrapbooking. Kim Meyer and Julie Checkaway spent some time living in that world to put together a documentary. And along the way, they met one woman whose scrapbooking was so intense that it took on a special kind of character. In her suburban Houston home where other people would have the dining room, she has a room that's filled with hundreds of ink stamps, thousands of stickers, countless sheets of patterned papers, scrapbook supplies, all ready for a launch toward a future years from now. Kim Meyer tells the story. Timmy Emmons keeps her scrapbooks by the windows so, in case of fire, she can break the glass from the outside and rescue them. Timmy's in her late thirties, blonde hair, the sort of woman who doesn't like to answer the door without her makeup on. Pretty much every single scrapbook she's made is of her daughter, Maddie. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and then not in books. This is probably twelve, thirteen. I think I have like three more, so I'll probably have fifteen or sixteen. I have 15 or 16 albums, and I really only, I've only probably touched the last three years. Her first year of life, I haven't even touched yet. 
you know, she's four years old and already has 17 books. <laughs> I don't know where, I'm going to have to start my own library. <laughs> Each scrapbook is several inches thick and bound in leather. They're like some mutant cross between a photo album and a journal. On one page, portraits of Maddie in a flowery Easter dress and sun hat are matted on yellow and green, acid-free, archival-quality papers. Then, cascading down into these abundant piles at the bottom of the page are purple and yellow pansies, hundreds of them, that Timmy pressed from her own yard. On another page, Eight copies of the same photograph of Maddie at the beach in her little pink swimsuit are cut into triangles. The eight triangles are pasted around a central point, so you get the effect of looking through a kaleidoscope. In another layout, she scrapbooked Maddie on September 11th, doing somersaults in front of the TV with pictures of the World Trade Center site flickering in the background. Timmy says she was struck by her daughter's innocence on this day when she herself thought the world was coming to an end. She matted the photos on red, white, and blue papers. The headline, streaming above all this, was taken from an Alan Jackson song. Where were you on that September morn? On nearly every page, Timmy also has brief journal entries, matted on contrasting patterned papers, and printed out in fonts appropriate to the subject matter. Curly cues for birthdays, calligraphy for more serious events. Timmy's got a journal entry for every day since she first found out she was pregnant with Maddie. The day we visited, she had 1,765 in the hole. Here's one of them. January 26, 2001. You and I ran errands and shopped a big part of the day. You drew all over a card for your Papa Chase's birthday. I learned today that you now know how to open certain types of doors that have pull handles. Reading these, one after another, page after page, is a little overwhelming, a sheer accumulation and tenacity. It's too complete, too much like real life, all those mundane details. You went to gymnastics and took your kitty with you today. Timmy tells us that when it comes to Maddie, nothing is mundane, that every little bit is important. She wants to capture it all. When my little girl kept going to all her doctor appointments every two months and getting all of her shots, as terrible as this sounds, I took my camera with me to the doctor's office and took pictures of her. I walk around all the time seeing scrapbook layouts everywhere I go. Uh, there are times I've, I've seen Maddie just sitting on the doorstep, uh, in one time in particular, and I saw her just staring intently, and I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, I'm watching the butterfly. And so I went and grabbed my camera, and I wanted to take a picture of her just staring at the butterfly. At every, at every moment, every corner I turn, there's a possible scrapbook layout. <laughs> After Maddie was born, Timmy found it more and more difficult to work full-time, be an attentive wife, raise her daughter, and scrapbook so seriously. So when Maddie was about two, Timmy decided to quit her job as a paralegal. It may sound extreme to leave work in order to make expensive and elaborate scrapbooks that only your family will ever see, and the scrapbooking supplies are slowly taking over their house. But Gary, Timmy's husband, just kind of shrugs at all that. <laughs> It's her house. I'm just living in it. Um, <laughs> um, I've got my, my remote control, my TV, and my chair. 
Um, I have my own little closet, which I didn't have for a while. I only had half of that. Um, I have the closet and one little spot on the dresser. That's, that's me. Um, the rest of the house is hers. <laughs> Not that the scrapbooking doesn't worry him sometimes. I mean, I don't know if that's good or bad, but... Do you, what do you think? Like, uh, what, what would be good and what would be bad about it? I think if you're always in the mode of trying to create a moment, sometimes I think you let moments pass by without really enjoying them. You know, so her way to hold on to that is to create something that she can physically look at to remember that, that particular moment, maybe to recapture that feeling again. I always try to tell her, would you just relax and sit down and try to enjoy it? You know, I mean, there's got to be some part that you take in in, in your soul. Um, in that respect, I feel bad for her because she's so worried about holding on to it that I don't know if she really ever captures it. Timmy is so intent sometimes on capturing the moment that even if that moment somehow passes her by, she'll restage it in order to get the layout she wants. One Christmas, when her photos came back from the lab too dark, she actually fabricated the whole holiday season, again. She dragged out all of her decorations, redressed Maddie in her various Christmas outfits, and took a bunch of photos over. Fortunately, the tree was still up. I remember that, that whole deal just because the fact that I couldn't believe that she was redressing Maddie back up in Christmas stuff for pictures because she thought that they didn't come out quite right. Um, and she had to pull it. And if you would see the, the number of boxes we have for Christmas decorations, it is two closets full, um, and everything has to go back into its little box, you know, wrapped up in bubble wrap and put into the box, and it's like, oh, my God. My husband thinks I'm out of control. I don't think I am out of control, but I think it's all in one's perspective. Most people look at me and go, oh, my gosh, you're a bit excessive here. <laughs> um, but, but we're all enjoying it. We're having fun. We're making scrapbooks for our children or our grandchildren. We're doing something creative. It's not like we're out, you know, uh, Mel to Marcos and blowing all our money on shoes or something. So... So long as we get the laundry done and the house clean and the cooking done, who cares what we do with our spare time? <laughs> do you think, is there any, like, negative repercussions on Maddie with the obsessive kind of nature of, of it? Um, there are times when I'm working on a project, I've got a deadline, and I'm stressed about it, and I'm sitting there grinding at the table trying to get this project done. And Maddie's saying, but Mommy, I want you to read me a book. And I'm saying, I'll read you a book in a little while. When I'm finished, I've got to get this done. And when I think about it, I'm like, okay, now what's most important here? Really? And honestly, my daughter is most important. But there are times that I put her off when she really needs me or wants me because I'm working on scrapbooking. Now, that, that is the time that I think that's a negative. We ask Timmy what she thinks it's about, her need to document her life so compulsively, and she's not sure at first. She gives different reasons at different times. She talks about how, when she was nine, her grandmother died. She'd spent nearly every day of her life with her grandmother. A year later, her family pulled up stakes in West Virginia and moved to Houston where they knew no one. 
Back east, she'd been surrounded by a large extended family of great-grandparents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins who lived in little towns like Hurricane and Dunbar and Tater Creek. But a thousand miles from where she began, she was suddenly isolated from everything that had seemed vital and real. Her past seemed erased. Her parents began to fight and they later divorced. Everything sort of fell apart. She hasn't seen her father in years. And all sorts of people close to her started dying off. And it's all this loss that Timmy seems to be trying to fend off through her scrapbooks. It's almost like if she can arrange life in these beautiful layouts, she can control it. And in visiting her over the course of a few weeks, my co-producer Julie and I suggest that to her. I've thought about that a great deal in the last week, about, you know, here I have, I'm this person that has this death issue. I've known that for the longest time, but it never occurred to me that that could be what was the underlying driving force I mean, making me almost feel possessed sometime about I've got to get this done. I've got to hurry. You know, I, I want to get this all on paper. I've got it all written down. I've got to make sure I don't miss anything. Um, and it never occurred to me that there was that deep of a link motivating me. So that's been very profound for me. About 10 years ago, Timmy's mother presented her with a plaster cast of Timmy's hands back when Timmy was six, a project she'd made when she was in the first grade. Her mother had saved it all these years. I cried and cried and cried <laughs> because it meant something to me that it was important enough to her to hold on to it and keep it all those years and give it back to me and say, you know, this is a part of your childhood. This was part of your life. I want you to hold on to this. It gives you roots. It gives you history. Um, so I wanted to capture for Maddie who she was, where she came from, and what her life was like. Um, and I assumed that she would be the same way, <laughs> that it would be just as important for her. I can't quit. I don't know why. I don't know. It's partially, like, out of guilt. Um, I know this sounds silly, but it's not... It's almost as if if I stop, then it says I don't care enough to write or, or I'm too busy in my day that I can't fill up a one and a half inch square about your life. And I just feel too guilty to stop. It's like once I got started, I can't quit. So the big news is that Timmy's pregnant again. She has a baby boy on the way in just a few months. And this has put her in an untenable position. She's not sure there are enough hours in the day to scrapbook for two children. If you've decided that scrapbooks are how you show your love for your child, what does it say about your love if you stop scrapbooking? Timmy has sort of scrapbooked herself into a corner. I have not journaled even a fraction to this baby what I did for Maddie. And and that's really been bothering me. And even in my journal, I have written to the baby trying to explain why I have not journaled as much. And please don't take this personally when you get older and read your journal and wonder why your mommy didn't write very much to you. Timmy's trying to finish up the scrapbook of Maddie's first year before the new baby is born in October. She says that this scrapbook will be about 100 pages long. So far, she's done 12 pages. 
Every two-page layout takes her 10 to 12 hours to do. That's nearly a thousand hours of work. 40 straight days, all scrapbooking, no sleep. The new baby's due in 10 weeks. She's not sure she's going to make it. Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Kim Meyer and her co-producer Julie Checkaway live in Houston. Their website, storyrodeo.org. Act 3. Slingshot. John Hodgman has this letter, which he wrote years ago, and which he agreed to read on our program, about the changes that can happen from one summer to the next. Dear Mary, Here is all that need be said about my experience gambling in Atlantic City. At the Trump Taj Mahal, I played $1 to $3, seven-card stud for four hours, sipping free whiskey and making jokes with strangers, and I lost all of $7. Then I played slots and lost seven times that in a quick, mean, and lonely 40 minutes. As they say, easy come, easy go. It's tempting to use gambling as a metaphor when writing about the Jersey Shore, but I would rather discuss the metaphoric power of the slingshot, which stands at 8th and Boardwalk, a handful of miles south of the Taj in Ocean City, New Jersey. Like all good metaphors, the slingshot is versatile and may be seen from many different angles. It is seen first, and from afar, as two enormous towers lit with neon, a hundred feet high above the boardwalk and the ocean beyond. As you get closer, you see that between them is suspended a spherical cage that rotates freely around its horizontal axis, where cables stretch from either side to the tips of the two towers. There are two seats inside the sphere that, after a hydraulic mechanism tightens the cables, carry two occupants 200 feet into the air at 100 miles per hour while spinning. It is the sort of thing that its creators bill as a ride. It is the sort of thing that, when seen from the ground at the very base of the towers, inspires one 14-year-old girl with very large teeth to somberly explain to her girlfriend, I'm not saying that you're going to die. I'm just saying that if you do die, it was meant to be. The summer before this one, we were fearless. In 1999, Catherine and I came to Ocean City for an engagement party that my mother and her five sisters threw for us on the deck of my Aunt Susan's summer home. We opened presents until dusk fell. Then Catherine and I hiked down to the main drag of the boardwalk and took on everything the amusement parks had to offer. The giant Ferris wheel, the inverter, the city jet, the Spanish galleon, Catherine's favorite. We were thrown and twisted and twirled, and Catherine almost got sick but didn't. My grandmother was alive then, and so was my mother. Several weeks after we left, there was an accident on a new roller coaster at Wonderland Pier, the Wild Wonder. One car slammed into another at high speed, and two occupants, a young woman from New York and her very young child, were thrown from their restraints. They flew out of the car, through the air, and into a steel support beam. They died instantly. As well, as you may recall from my last letter, my grandmother died the following Christmas, and my mother died the following June, six days after my birthday, both quickly, both with little warning. And then in August, we returned to Ocean City. People asked, will it be hard going back without your mother? And I had no answer, the same non-answer I had and have to any question about how hard it is or will be now that all these things have happened. Jesus, I don't know. 
let's go to the boardwalk. When we got to Wonderland Pier, no one seemed to feel the chill haunt of the roller coaster deaths but us. I watched the children in the little cars fly into the air and I cringed. I watched the teenagers necking on the giant Ferris wheel with its rust spots and strange creakings. Just looking at the double dip at Playland made my neck hurt. But it was the slingshot that sent us packing. The slingshot is not affiliated with either Wonderland or Playland. The slingshot stands alone. Couple after couple are sent screaming into the black summer night, becoming a tiny star-like spark against the sky, cables heaving, towers wobbling, sphere becoming invisible. It was the slingshot that made us feel too old, too scared, and suddenly vulnerable. Catherine has said that when she was a child, she loved all amusement park rides because she knew that they were made by grown-ups, which to her meant endless safety and boundless security. Naturally, we have outgrown that delusion. As we trudged back from the boardwalk in defeat, we saw the moon over the beach, or at least we thought it was the moon. It hovered just above the inky horizon, blood-red, engorged, larger than the sun at dawn, too bloated to hoist itself any further in the sky, and more likely about to fall. A small crowd had actually gathered by the boardwalk's rail to gawk at it, as though it were a fleet of invading spaceships, and Catherine and I joined them. Either that's the moon, someone behind us said or something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. So now it's the next night, the night after the moon, and Catherine and I have returned to the slingshot. The large-toothed girl behind us in line says her piece about death and destiny, and we clutch our non-refundable tickets with panic and regret. We watch that spherical cage ascend and descend for nearly 45 minutes, We watch children no older than ten be happily loaded into what we come to call the ascending sphere of death. And then we're next. It is difficult to explain what has drawn us here after our cowardly retreat last night. We have every excuse not to be here, from the metaphysical to the financial. It costs twenty bucks a head to fly. This alone should chase off a cheapskate like me. But we're here at Catherine's impulsive suggestion and my impulsive agreement and neither one of us wants to back down. We want to be able to say we will not be cowed by death. But we also see very clearly the weak links in the slingshot chain, the points where the cable may break or the tower may buckle. The whole rig is set back from the boardwalk in the semi-dark of 8th Street. Though enormous, it has the look of something that really shouldn't be there, of something that can be broken down and carted away very quickly should the sheriff show up wanting to know What's all this about a slingshot, then? There is a palpable air of unease around us, as though all of us in line can perhaps too easily envision something snapping this time, the ball flying up and disappearing into the night, crashing miles away, in the ocean perhaps, or a parking lot, and if not this time, the next time. I did not tell Catherine this, and really haven't considered it until now, but we are there too, I think, not just to defy death, but to welcome it. It has been a hard year. It has been an unfair year in which we have been taught to think of the unthinkable, taught that we are not exempt from tragedy, but in fact can be its strange attractors. It's not quite a suicide pact, but I think that we share an agreement, unspoken even to ourselves, that if this thing kills us, we could live with that, so to speak.
When our turn comes, there's a strange ritual to it. We empty our pockets into a plastic bin. Wallets, change, keys, saltwater taffy, Catherine's flip-flops. I take my glasses off and give them to the man who will prepare us for the ride. I swear he has a handlebar mustache. He tells us we can take nothing with us. We sit in the cage. The mustachioed man arranges the nylon straps and restraining bars that hold us in place. One of them goes directly across my crotch, but I am not embarrassed to have him help me there. I am beyond such modesties. Tighter, I say. He closes the cage and gives it a friendly tap. It'll be over before you know it, he says. The cage tilts back and is locked into a release switch below. We are facing directly upwards now. There are no stars. They are blotted out by the lights of the boardwalk. The towers hum as the cables tighten. I take Catherine's hand. Pretend we are going into space, I say. That is not a comfort, she says. The hum grows very loud. The cables grow very tight. Catherine takes her hand back. She wants to hold the restraint. A switch somewhere is thrown, and we go up. As metaphors for life and death on the boardwalk go, gambling in Atlantic City is pretty promising. But the slingshot is better for two reasons. One, though it is unlikely, it may actually kill you. And two, it reminds you that when you are close to death and intimate with it, when you are spinning fast and high in the dark night with nothing around you, it is difficult to tell what is happening. It is difficult to be afraid. Far more difficult than it is on the ground. John Hodgman runs the Little Gray Books lecture series in New York. His letter once appeared at openletters.net. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Put your makeup on, fix your hair pretty, and make me the night in Atlantic City. Special thanks today to Katie Chevney and Big Mouth Productions for the tape of George Ryan. They're making a film about the death penalty. Thanks to Larry Holt at KUER and to George Lara, who saved our butts today. You can download audio of our show at audible.com slash thisamericanlife, where they have public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show comes from the Kauffman Foundation of Kansas City, accelerating entrepreneurship across America, on the web at kauffman.org, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who finds himself fascinated, fascinated, by the phrase, Big sloppy glops of poop. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI, Public Radio International.